It's time for the number one talk show of Eastern Connecticut and Southern Rhode Island. The Stu Breyer Potpourri Talk Show on 1310 WICH. Now here's Stu Breyer. Well, we have uh, Julianne Mangin on the line, and uh, she is a writer, researcher, family historian. Her book is The Secrets of the Asylum, Norwich State Hospital, and My Family. Julianne, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure uh, to have you on. Of course, you're going to be at the library, Otis Library today, our beautiful library, starting at 5.30 today. You know, there's been a lot of uh, information about the... uh, Norwich Hospital, documentaries, but uh, learning about your book, I think you go a little bit deeper than that. Tell us about it. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's um, it's partly a family history, but um, I think it's got more than a general interest, be- uh, more of a general interest, because what I couldn't find out about how my uh, ancestors were treated at Norwich State Hospital caused me to do some deep historical research to get a sense of what might have happened there. And so um, I focused on the years that I had actual ancestors there, so roughly from the beginning of the hospital in 1904, or six, I forget, <laughs> going up to about the mid-40s when uh, my grandmother was discharged. So yes, I, I, I have a strong emphasis in history beyond my own family history. Well, uh, certainly, they, I didn't realize, boy, it goes back that far, the Norwich Hospital, and through the years, there's been a lot of changes. So your your family members were there as patients, but not workers. Is that correct? Well, one of them became a worker, and that's, that's part of the story. Um, if you, What I'd like to do is tell you just now which, which of my ancestors were there. Mm-hmm. It was my great-grandmother, her sister and then my grandmother and her sister. And in addition, um, my grandmother had another sister who was in a different state hospital. So apparently there was a lot of mental illness in that part of the family. Uh, but I got their records uh, from the state archives, which is was the basis of the book, was getting information I could have gotten from nowhere else. Well, it's amazing that, uh, that they kept all these archives. Uh... Did you think you were going to find what you did? No. <laughs> I mean, I would have said, um, why? Are you kidding me? They wouldn't have kept that, but they did, huh? Yeah, and unfortunately, I don't think that they were able to get keep all of the patient records. Um, but uh, for my part, they had all of my family's ancestors, and that was very fortunate because mm-hmm. what's in those records is not just medical or psychiatric information. There's a lot of, um, you know, they take family histories and they do social histories, and I found it had a lot of anecdotes about what had happened to the family that I didn't know and used to um, to sort of decipher these family stories that my mother told me in a sort of a brief, brief and sort of fragmented way. And I did discover some family secrets, some of which she may have known and some she may not have known. So that's why it's called Secrets of the Asylum. Mm-hmm. It, really, it was a revelation. You said one of your family actually worked there, so they would have certainly first-hand information as well. Well, the thing that's interesting is, so the person who worked there was my grandmother, who um, she was a patient from 1935 to uh, 1944, 
Um, and what happened was um, she was a very high-functioning person with paranoid schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And when World War II broke out, um, what happened was that the state hospitals everywhere, not just Norway's state hospital, had a hard time uh, keeping male uh, attendants on the staff because they could make more money in the defense industry or they were, you know, joining the military to fight in the war. So the superintendent at the time took a very um, unique approach to the staffing problem, which if you look around at who some of the most high-functioning patients were and put them to work. So my grandmother turned out to be one of them. And then uh, she eventually got discharged, but uh, she didn't have anywhere to go afterwards, and they said, well, why don't you stay on as a state employee? So she stayed there for uh, 14 more years wow. as an employee, and then she retired with a pension. So it's kind of a redemptive story that she went in there so ill and then became a functioning person in society. That is uh, an amazing story in itself. I wonder how many times something like that has ever happened. Hmm? Uh, well, you know, I really don't know, but um, I think if more people were, you know, you know, took the time to see if they could get their ancestors' records, you know, you might uncover stories like that. You know, it's just um, who knows what's in there. You know, Julianne, in the, in those days, which you're talking about 1906, etc., but. Uh, People would be committed, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, if uh, today people with some of those symptoms would never, ever be considered committed to the hospital. Did you find that in some of your research? Uh, Yes, I did. Um, What I think, one of the reasons that the hospital got so overcrowded in the beginning was that, yes, they did have people with actual mental illnesses, but they also were getting people who had, um, like, other ailments that had a neurological consequence, like for example, they would have epileptics there. Well, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think that a state hospital we would think today would be appropriate place for them. Sure. They also had, um, well, you know, and, and remember, this was before there were any safety nets like you know Social Security or Medicare. So when people got old and and they were senile again. You know, it has an appearance of a mental ailment, but it's not the same as a psychosis. But there was nowhere else for them to go, so many poor elderly senile people ended up in the hospital, which, again, made it more overcrowded and overburdened the situation. In your research, uh, Julianne, uh, were you shocked at some of the things that uh, transpired at the hospital? Uh, Yes. (laughs) Uh, One of the things that... um, I found out. So my mom used to tell me the story about her grandmother and how she was sent to Norwood State Hospital, and then she just said, and some doctor thought it was a good idea to pull out all her teeth. And I always thought that is the weirdest thing I ever heard. Absolutely. But when I, yeah, but when I got her record, um, I found out that in fact while she was there, they pulled all her teeth. And then because I spent some time just researching general the history of. Um, mental health care in the first half of the 20th century, I discovered that there had been a theory that uh, insanity was caused by hidden infections in the body and that the most likely place for those to be would be in the teeth and so they would pull them off. So it was actually a thing. So um, it's kind of interesting that not only did the patient records help me under 
uncover secrets I didn't know. It also helped me confirm things that I did know but didn't understand until I got the fuller context of it, you know. I know this this word is not politically correct these days, but in those days was if somebody was born uh, retarded, uh, I believe that they would even put them in a hospital. Yes, there probably was some of that. Um, I think they also started um, special institutions for them. But, um, you know, the state hospitals grew out of what was there earlier, which was almshouses, and basically all the misfits, the mentally or physically or intellectually handicapped people all got just dumped into the same place. And um, the state hospital was supposed to be an answer for it, but obviously it grew to have its own problem. Uh, obviously in those days the, we don't have the protection of ombudsmen and people who are looking out for patients, um, so mm-hmm. that was probably lacking in a big way as well. Yeah, I think so. So oh, I'm sorry. I didn't think I would get a text today. You got a text? Anyway... Yeah, no, but I, I'm sorry if it interrupted. The no, broadcast. no, that's fine. Do you have another question for me? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, all right. Let, so tell me about what your talk, uh, obviously you're going to talk about a lot of these things that we're talking about now, but 5.30 today at the Otis Library. Um, what are you going to dig into today there? Well, um, the book has uh, got a lot of topics, so I decided to make a choice. Um, so I picked two things that I wanted to go into. Um so one of them is talking about the benefits of having access to these uh, patient records uh, and the importance of using family history to, you know, to empower people and heal old wounds in the family by knowing what really happened. Um, so there's that. And also, I, I kind of want to make a statement that um, you hear a lot when people talk about Norwich State Hospital, you know, that maybe it was a terrible place and people were abused and I'm sure that possibly happened but I think that in some cases such as my grandmother it was very uh, it helped her rehabilitate her basically so those are kind of the two messages I want to try to get across tonight and I decided since I'm not sure what people may ask about that I'm only going to talk for maybe a half an hour and then I would love to have a real dialogue with the audience about what they know about Norwich State Hospital that I might not know. If any of our listeners would like to ask a question now, we'll open up the line at 889-5252. Well, obviously we've come a long way uh, treating patients since 1906. I can imagine uh, how antiquated things must have been in those days. Yeah. Well, I don't... I don't think they... Well, I don't think they knew how to deal with them, but they had theories to work on. And in the early days, what they tried to do was just make a, you know, a quiet, calming place. If you look at some of the old state hospitals, you'll notice that some of them are on beautiful grounds with, you know, wonderful architecture. And so there was a theory that this they could be treated just by being in a calming environment with nurturing hospital staff. Um, but that only worked when the population of the hospital stayed pretty low and it quickly got out of hand. And so um, 
in the beginning, then they were like occupational therapy. They thought that would help. And then there was this whole idea of hydrotherapy, which was like soaking people in hot baths and hoping that that would calm them. Um, but they really didn't have the answer uh, there, but I guess they were just doing the best they could. Of course, there's been a change in toxic treatment, uh, electric shock treatment from then mm-hmm. as now. It's totally different. Which causes a lot yeah. of causes a lot of problems, I'm sure, in those days. Right. Well, and the thing is, like this whole theory about the teeth, for example, uh, it was. I think it was partly had to do with the fact that, like, in the early 20th century, when these state hospitals started becoming more prevalent, um, you know, the, the profession of being a psychiatrist um, was not as well respected in the medical profession because they couldn't figure. You know, like at the same time. People who were in general medicine were finding out what caught, you know, like a certain microorganism would cause a certain disease, and they would make great strides in, in curing these things. But the psychiatrists didn't have that advantage, and so they started, like, working on these theories, trying to come up with something that would bring, you know, in some ways, some more validation to their profession. So they had, but they they couldn't agree on what what even caused mental illness. Like some people thought it was environmental causes, um, or some people thought it was like physical things, like hidden infections in the body. But they were really struggling um, compared to like general medicine to like come up with a diagnosis and then a cure. And so it led to things that some things that might have been abusive because they actually experimented directly on these poor, helpless patients. So, Sometimes we hear about, um, years and years ago, people with mental illness, they were being connected, well, they're, they're possessed by the devil and things like that. Mm-hmm. Anything, any stories in that nature in the early days? Uh, not in the early days of Norwich State Hospital. Um, I think they were kind of past that by then, um, but I and I didn't delve too much in the history uh, before then, but I, I do believe, yes, that I think probably in the 18th century, you know, that was something that people had to deal with. One so of our yes, listener, that might have been a belief. Yeah, one of our listeners has a question for you. Hi, WICH. Hi. Hello. Turn your radio down, please. Hello. Okay. Sorry we lost a listener there. Is your book available everywhere now, uh, Julianne? Um, Right now it's available um, online um, at uh, the the place where I got it uh, published, which is bookbaby.com. And it's also available on Amazon and also Barnes & Noble although um, they may be out of stock right now, but I think they're taking orders still. And it's also available as a Kindle or an e-book, and those, of course, are available right now if people want to read it that way. Let me try the lines again. Hi, WICH. You have a question, please. Hello. Hello. What is your question, please? What is my question? What information do you need in order to get information about someone who passed away at or was a patient at Norwich Hospital. Okay, thanks. Oh, yeah, that's an excellent question, and, and I get it a lot. Um, what I was told when I approached them is uh, you, 
they were only going to give me a record for a deceased patient, but that was my grandmother. And um, I had to prove my uh, relationship to her, and so I sent them copies of her birth and death certificates. Uh, my mother was alive at the time, so I sent her birth certificate, and then I sent my birth certificate. And, of course, that proved my relationship to my grandmother. And so they went looking for the record in their archives, and a couple of days later I got an email, and they said, yes, we found your grandmother's record, but, you know, we keep track of who's related to who among these records. We have three other family members, you know, do you want their records too? And, of course, I said yes. Yeah. And so that's how I ended up with four. One of them I didn't even know had had a mental illness, so it solved the mystery in my family tree by getting that extra information. We're talking with Julianne Mangan, who is uh, going to be at the Otis Library today at 5.30, talking about the Norwich State Hospital. Hi, what is your question? Hello, good morning. What is your question? Okay, somebody obviously not turning their radio down in the background. So how long have you been working on this book? Um, I started doing the research in 2012, which was the year after I retired, and um, I worked on it pretty continuously until about, I don't know, about 2019, and then uh, I took a break during the pandemic, but I had pretty much finished the manuscript by like 2019, and uh, it took me a long time, but I really wanted to not just uh, gather a bunch of facts, but I tried to turn it into a cohesive narrative that that balances a storyline of my family with a lot of history that I thought people would find interesting and also history that helped me build the story. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I, I spent a long time on it, but I, I think it resulted in a quality product, you know, something that people are really going to enjoy reading. So, Julianne, are you from this area, or I know you did a little traveling to get here today. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, I live um, in... Uh, Suburban Maryland, just north of Washington, D.C. And the reason I live there is because my mother grew up in, um, she actually grew up in Stonington, and she lived uh, a little bit of her childhood in Danielson. And then um, when she was put in the New London County Temporary Home, that was in Norwich. Um, so she has deep roots here in uh, Connecticut. But uh, after the war, after World War II, uh, she moved to Washington, D.C. to pursue a, her, her uh, academic uh, degree, and she met my father there, and so then they started a family in the Washington, D.C. area. So that's where I'm from. Mm-hmm. Let's try the lines again here. Hi, WICH. You have a question from my guest. Yes, good afternoon, Stowe. What is your question, sir? Uh, the newspaper article says she's going to be there at 4.30, and you say 5.30. Ask her which, what time is it, 4.30 or 5.30? Okay, Julianne, what time is it going to be, 4.30 or 5.30? It's 5.30. 5.30, the paper got okay, it wrong. The paper was wrong then. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, Thanks. My thought on that Go ahead. That was, okay, better that people come an hour early than an hour late, because if they're an hour early, they still will be able to 
hear my talk, but it's definitely at 5.30. Yeah, if you come early, you'll look at some of the books in the library, and then you'll uh, hear what you uh, have to say, which a lot of people are looking forward to it. Oh, that's so nice to hear. A little confused about one thing, uh, Julianne, when you said, well, they they gave you this information. You know, the, the... of course, the hospital's been closed for a very long time, so who are the they that gave you the information? Oh, I'm sorry I didn't make that clear. Yeah, so what happened was when I realized what hospital my grandmother was in, I, I um, searched the Internet, and I found out that all the patient records are at the State Archives in the um, Connecticut State Library. Hmm. And they're the ones who basically make sure that only people who see it who have a right to see it. So they were the ones that um, asked for the proof, you know, that I was actually a direct descendant. I'm really glad you brought that up because that's a very important piece of how to get the record. Yeah, I mean, one would think, well, I guess they they keep those records forever. Well. Close to it. I think, well, I think now um, they're more, you know, the, the world is more... Uh, tuned to the idea that we should archive stuff and make it available, but you know, mm-hmm. back in the day, I mean, we're lucky we have what we've got. Um, uh, yeah, I, I felt very fortunate that they uh, grabbed what they could and, and made it available to people who need it. Do they uh, show in the records, for instance, why some of your family was in the Norwich State Hospital for treatment and what some of the symptoms were while they were there? Yes, um, the the patient records um, have a, lots of different pieces. But like, for example, there's an admission record, and they give a complete, you know, description of the person and what they look like, and and so forth. And that's where where I found out that my great grandmother it said right there that she had her teeth when she came in. So I, that's how I knew mm-hmm. that they were taken out later. But they also, they have what they call the history of the mental illness, and basically it it details the behaviors that led up to that person being committed. Then they have, like, things like a social history where they go out and talk to all the family members and just, like, figure out what was going on in the family at the time and how they were dealing with this person's illness. But the great thing for me as a genealogist was that they had names and described how they were related to the patient really helped me, you know, understand the structure of the family. And then in my grandmother's case, her record had something called an interval history, and that's because um, she had been allowed to leave the hospital after a year and was put on what they call parole. And um, she had had two six-month parole periods, and then they decided she was still pretty disturbed and they brought her back to Norwich State Hospital. So this thing in her record called an interval history was about that interval between her two times there, and it detailed all the different things that happened. Because the social workers would go visit people on parole, and it, it was a history of everything that had happened in that interim period, and that was also quite a revelation. So generally it was a family member who would decide that they wanted to commit this person because they were disturbed, and that's generally how it worked? Um, Well, uh, yeah, that's one way. That's one of the main ways. Um, So back, um, like, when my great-grandmother went in, um, things um, like welfare was 
was handled by the town. And so they had all these rules about who belonged to what town. So they would have a hearing. If someone was deemed to be mentally ill, the town would send the person to the state hospital and the mm -hmm. town would be charged for this. So they wanted to have a hearing where they made sure the person really belonged to their town, but also then they would have two doctors examine the person and um, set, declare that person insane, and then a judge would uh, make a court order that she be taken there. And so that's how a lot of people got in there. Uh, occasionally people admitted them themselves because they knew they had problems and they wanted help, but... Um, there were other ways, you know, like if someone was picked up by the police and it was determined that, oh, this person committed the crime because they were mentally ill, mm -hmm. and they'd get them committed that way. So that's sort of the process, but it's really, uh, it's a case-by-case -case basis. I, I hate to make generalizations sure. because, a, you know, a lot <clears throat> could happen. Julianne, what do you think about what's going on in our country today? Many people says we need more of these facilities like the Norwich Hospital. A lot of people still upset that it's gone, and I know mm -hmm. that when I first uh, started in radio, I volunteered for a closed-circuit radio station at the Boston State Hospital, and I learned a lot about it then, but that's all closed, and then you hear people doing these atrocities who are absolutely mentally ill, who are mm -hmm. not getting the help they should. It's a little confusing why we don't have as, as much uh, of these hospitals. Oh, well, I agree with you. It's a big problem, and... and, and <laughs> As a writer and a researcher, I thought, well, maybe I don't really want to go there. So I don't know as much about what's going on now, but I will say that um, when the hospitals closed, I think that there was an idea that they would be helped by these community psychiatric centers that would give them care, but out in the community. But these things didn't materialize, and so they kind of, these folks that needed care were left hanging. And so I think that there are some people that really do need to be in a um, environment like a state hospital, um, but there's not a, as much access to that anymore. So yeah, it's a, it's a big problem. I, I don't know how to solve it, but it is. It well, is I guess solve it. Maybe we should go back to uh, you know people that need to to be in a facility where they cannot hurt anybody, including themselves, and take their meds regularly, because that seemed to be a problem when the uh, Norwich State Hospital closed. You know, a lot of the patients were around and uh, weren't taking the meds, and it was a big problem. So, well, Yeah, I, you know, because I'm not from around Norwich, so I, I wasn't aware that was going on, but I could definitely see why, how mm -hmm. that would be a problem. Well, we're looking forward. Everybody's looking forward to seeing you tonight. Uh, Julianne Menken, writer, researcher, family historian, The Secrets of the Asylum, Norwich State Hospital, and my family. So uh, I think you're going to get a nice turnout tonight at the library, and I wish you a lot of luck with your book. All right. Thanks so much, Sue. It was great talking to you. Same here, Julianne. Good luck to you. Thank you.